sermon text for this morning is Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no child, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, It is not the reason you, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite, quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good to see you all here this morning. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church, Tucson. Um, Redemption Church is one church in multiple congregations throughout Arizona. And um, so we just celebrated last week our one-year anniversary as a church. And so, yeah, it was exciting and, 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 and fun and just good to, to celebrate. And, and But, you know, honestly, I've been excited for this week because we're kind of getting back at it. We're getting back into it. It was fun to pause last week and to look back and to look ahead. But it just, it's fun to get together, to get into God's Word this morning. Um, as I said, my name is Dave. And by way of introduction, I always want to say, um, in case you're new or you've never heard me preach before, I have a stutter. So just so you know what that is and you're not trying to figure it out as we go, um, that's all it is. And um, sometimes during football season, it gets even worse because I yell the night before. And so next week, UCLA might get worse, but um, who knows? But anyway, um, I'll move on from there. We'll, we'll, we might talk about that more next week. We'll see. But, um, you know, this, um, this week, we're going to get into it. We're getting into Mark chapter 12. If you read the passage, you might be um, uh, like me thinking, man, this one is a doozy, right? So if you're new, you picked a good one, a good week. If you want to see the pastor struggle and squirm a little bit through a hard text, this is a good week for that. And um, I will say I've read and prepared and listened and kind of sought out a lot this week, probably more than normal because it's a crazy one, as you saw. And um, so with that, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. And um, if you don't have a Bible with you, hold your hand up high and somebody will hit you one. Okay, so we want to make sure you have a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, you do now. Okay, keep this, please. And put your name in it, underline it, put question marks next to passages like we're getting into today. Um, also seeing Necesitas en Español. Tenemos solamente diga español. Um, so if you prefer to read the Bible in Spanish, uh, go ahead and just say uh, español. And um, so we're going to get into it. But, but beforehand, I want to just take this as a moment to explain to us, guys, this is why we love going through books of the Bible. 
for days like this because we submit ourselves to God's Word, okay? We say time and time again, um, all of life is all for Jesus. And we say um, the thing we can take comfort in together being here is that we're going to be uncomfortable together. Okay, so you're not going to be alone in, because um, we submit to God and His instructions and what He has to say about who He is and who we are and what it means to follow Him and, and what that means about our lives. And so if we were just looking for anecdotes and looking for, you know, neat little catchy sermons to kind of attach our lives to and to make fit into our everyday life, I guarantee you I would not pick a passage like this, like, Let's talk about the resurrection and about some um, woman who's been married to seven brothers, all right? And then, um, so easy, let's pick that. Um, but it's good because it forces us to come um, with a posture that we need to always have. It says, God, this is your word. Um, what do you have to say? Because our general tendency, our natural disposition is to um, take Jesus and to take God's word and to say, how do you fit into my life? How do um, I'm going to go on? I'm the authority. I'm in charge here of my life. And I want to take you. I want to look for some neat things that I can make my life a little better. And, and that's not how God designed us. So a little recap of where we are in Mark is exactly that. It begins with a proclamation of royalty, good news, God the Son is here. And then Jesus proclaims the kingdom of heaven. His kingdom is at hand. At hand means it's among you. It's present. It's breaking in. And then the question that we're challenged with and that the audience here and the characters throughout are challenged with is how do you respond to Jesus? And what we've seen time and time again is each person comes with that same posture that we tend to. Jesus, um, we've got our plans, and we want to fit you into it. And the crowds try to control Jesus. They try to make him do what they want to do. And, and he time and time again says, no, no, that's not the way it works. This isn't your kingdom. This is God's kingdom. And, and I'm bringing it, and I'm here to tell you what it looks like. And so there's a, a, a necessary call to, to be humble and to be expectant that he's going to shape us. And so, so with that, I'm going to pray for us as we get into this this um, text, as I said, um, it's not it's not um, it's not an easy just you know take this and fit it neatly in your life. I'll also say, if you've looked at it, our our first flinch, our first questions here in like you know 21st century USA, Tucson, Arizona, is not um, the questions we're asking are not the primary questions that this is addressing. So we're going to, um, again, all the more need to come humbly and say, God, what are you saying? Cause, but I will say all the questions that do come up in us, like, what about my spouse? What's going to happen in heaven? Are we going to know each other? Are we going to be married still? Some of those questions, again, that's not the primary questions here being addressed, but we are going to answer some of those because that would be really mean to me to just be like, sorry, never mind. Well, I'm not going to even hit on that. So. We are going to get into it. With that, let me, let me pray. All right, let's ask God to, to speak to us through His Word. Again, Lord, we thank You that this is Your Word. Um, it's days like this, times like this, that we're reminded of, of the truth. Lord, we deceive ourselves into thinking we have it all together. We come, we come at You with a posture that, that um, is full of pride and, Lord, sometimes arrogance. And that um, 
and they, and it definitely um, leaves us in a really broken place of thinking that all we need is a couple answers to our primary questions and then everything will be good. Lord, we know that we are sinful, broken people who have turned away from you by choice and by n- nature. And so, Lord, we need you to, to shape us. And so we confess that though the grass withers and the flower fades, your word endures forever. And so that's the, the posture that we come in. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us, that you would speak to us um, what you would have us hear. So we, we thank you and we need you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we go through this text, I, I, I came up with a couple of titles just to give us some handlebars, if you will, some kind of some things to hold on to as we walk through this potentially confusing text. What we'll see here is that when you come to Jesus, there is confrontation, there's transformation, and there is restoration. So as I said, as it might feel like we're going all over the place, this will help us kind of know where we're at as we go through through this text. And so we'll see that. First, there's confrontation. Alright, so picking up with me in verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. But there were seven brothers. Now let me pause right there before we get into the whole story of that part of where they go with it. Let's just understand who this is coming to Jesus. Who's coming and what is their posture, right? They say, teacher, right? So we might think, oh, they really want to learn. They're coming to Jesus. And they're like, hey, teacher. But it's more like, uh, teacher, like, you're supposed to be this wise, smart, you know, person. You've come and you've healed all these people, right? So they're really kind of pejorative, kind of mocking in their posture. And so to understand that, to understand who these Sadducees are, because we've seen different religious authorities approach Jesus in different ways and at different times as we've walked through Mark. Well, the Sadducees are um, the religious elite. They're, they're the minority, but they're the authority. Okay, they're the religious elite. It's they're the people that the high priest comes through. So the high priest would be one of the Sadducees, and they are the they are the wealthy, and they're the ones that have influence and power. They're predominantly the ones that relate between Rome and the majority of the Jewish people that would come through the Sadducees. And if you if you remember, we've encountered this other group before the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are the majority. And they're like the religious, um, kind of r- radical, revolutionary. I'll just pick more R words so you can hear me stutter more. Um, but they're like, they're kind of wild and crazy. And the Pharisees have a lot of influence amongst the people in actual practical ways. But the Sadducees have like real political, financial um, influence and authority. And As it says here, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And that's really important, and we're going to kind of get into this a little bit. But um, if you ever took a religious studies class here at the U of A, and you ever had Father Burns or Dr. Burns, this stuck with me like 15 years ago. He says, you can always remember the Sadducees because they don't believe in the resurrection. So they're sad, you see? (laughs) 
he's old. He could say things like that. Great guy. He was the head of the department there. Some of you had him and remember that affectionately. His bright, rosy red cheeks saying that. But um, So the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead, but the Pharisees did. And this is really important because what they're asking Jesus is they're coming at him and they're, remember, they're not saying, teacher, teach us, we want to learn, will you please help us? They're coming and saying, whose side are you going to be on, Jesus? Are you with these radical, crazy Pharisees who are willing to do, honestly, like terrorist-like stuff? Like they're willing to lay down their lives, they're, they're, they're willing to do crazy stuff and lead revolts and, and, and fight Rome because they believe in the resurrection from the dead. But the Sadducees, who have the authority, they have the wealth, they have the power, they come with a belief that I think is informed by their power and their influence that says, no, no, this life is all there is. When you die, you will no longer continue. You won't be raised from the dead. There will be no re resurrection from the dead. So you better stay in line. You don't want to get big, powerful Rome angry at you. You want to kind of continue on and, and kind of keep this life as it is. Okay, so that's how they're coming. So you've seen the Pharisees have come at J Jesus before and been like, Jesus, um, are you going to do what we thought you, we thought you would come in victoriously, but you came in on a donkey and we thought you would have a sword, but you didn't have a sword and what's going on here? You're not the way we thought you would be. And then on the flip side, these other religious authorities are coming and they're like, so are you going to be with us? But do you believe in the re resurrection? Based on things that Jesus has said, they know he believes in the resurrection. So that's why they come and they want to challenge him on this. All right. And I'll get into this in a, mo in a bit. What resurrection is. Okay. Because they're not saying what's heaven going to be like. That's not what they're asking, all right? They assumed either there is what the Bible calls the resurrection from the dead, or you're just annihilated and nothing happens when you die. And so they're coming and they're challenging Jesus. And so now pick back up in this crazy kind of Dostoevsky-like story where they come up and they say, and they say this in, uh, in verse 19, picking up. They say, so Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. But there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and then he died and left no offspring, and the second, and then it goes on and on until there were seven, and then eventually the woman dies. And then it says in verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And they're like, they're like, hmm? And they're, they're not genuinely wanting to know. They're like, silly Jesus, your ridiculous resurrection talk is clearly not going to work out here, right? And they say, according to the scriptures, and they quote Moses, because their understanding, the only authority of the scriptures came from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So they took, they said, that's the authority. That is God's word. Nothing else. So if Jesus were to quote the prophets, which talk a lot more about the resurrection, they'd be like, yeah, but we don't believe that stuff. That's not re really God's word. And so Jesus will bring that up. But what's interesting, what they quote here, this story, comes from the apocryphal book. 
of Tobit. Okay, so the Apocrypha, are you guys hanging with me? There's a lot of history here, but we need to peel back because our lenses that we come to God's Word are foggy. And if we don't kind of wipe them off a bit and we don't start understanding the questions that they're asking, then we just either are left like, this is just crazy, or um, we try to make it fit in some cute little way into our lives. And so, so they're quoting the book of Talbot, or no, Tobit, which is... Um, Again, another thing's thing Dr. Burns taught me here. J.T. McWeb, Judith, Talbot, First and Second Maccabees, the Book of Wisdom, the Book of Enoch, the Book of Quirut. That is the Apocrypha, and the Catholic Church still holds on to the Apocrypha. Um, and people in this day and, and in the early church wouldn't say, that stuff's horrible, but they also didn't accept it as canonized scripture, the, the complete, inerrant, perfect word of God given to lead his church, his, his people, okay? So this, they're quoting almost word for word from the book of Tobit, but they carry themselves in a way that says only the first five books of the Bible. See, so they're a walking hypocrisy. So as they try to challenge Jesus, as they try to expose Jesus, they're exposing themselves. And they're just picking and choosing from wherever they can to prove their own point that's going to make their own lives um, better, more secure, more stable, more financially prosperous. And they're just picking and choosing. But so they come at Jesus and they say these things. They confront Him. And let me just, again, encourage us all that when you come to Jesus... There's going to be a confrontation. There, there has to be. Okay, because our, our natural disposition, the Bible says, especially in the book of Romans, is that we are naturally enemies of God. It even says that the cross is foolishness or offensive. Okay, the, 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 it's going to be a stumbling block. So Jesus expects that these people don't get it. And in fact, he goes on and says, oh, clearly you don't understand, as we'll see in verse um, 24. But every time you come to Jesus, there has to be a confrontation. All right? Or are you hearing that? So listen, you might be like, man, this pastor is not trying to build this church. He's not trying to bring more people here. But let me, it's because if this is God's word, and if we are dealing with holy God who created us with a purpose and a plan, and God said, let us make man in our image, and then he gave us a mandate for what it looks like to be his people, a song that we sang and will sing, that we are his people and he is our God, then that means um, we're, we're not in charge. So, so we cannot come like these Sadducees and are like, God, prove yourself to me. Show me um, I want it to fit here. I, I want, you know, my life's going this way and I'll accept any kind of message, any kind of version of Christianity that will fit neatly and nicely into my life. That's really not an option. And Jesus doesn't try to make it an option, ever. Yes, God, our perfect, loving, heavenly Father who's patient with us, we're told all over, Jesus says, come, ask, seek, knock. He paints a picture of a perfect, loving, heavenly Father who welcomes us. But that's when you come humbly as a child, not when you come arrogantly as if you are God and you're putting Him on trial. So the Sadducees meet Jesus and they meet confrontation. How does Jesus respond to them? Like a boss, as he always does in verse 24. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. 
So as often happens, they come and they ask him a question, and he asks them a question. He doesn't answer them right away. He doesn't get into their story, right? He doesn't play according to their rules. As honestly, I so often do, someone paints this big philosophical challenge and you want to dive right into it and get into it with them. And Jesus is like, no, no, I'm not even going there. Um, is it not that you don't understand because you don't actually know the scriptures nor the power of God? And so he, he exposes them and he calls them out and then he goes on to explain. But he has a posture that's like, it's so easy and then he goes on and says in verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And then he keeps going on, but let's pause for a second, okay? Let's, we can be honest with ourselves here. If you're reading this on your own, as I did throughout this week, over and over and over again, Jesus is like, it's easy. You don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. And so we want to be like, okay, I do want to understand those. And then he goes on and says, it's so easy. When, um, you're, when the resurrection happens, um, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Okay, awesome, Jesus. That's not very easy. I'm actually more confused now. Than, right? Like, that's not an easy thing. And again, a part of why that's confusing to us is because of the questions we're coming with. Right, we're coming with a predominantly individualized. We're thinking as individuals. We're we're coming to God, and we're thinking, "What about marriage?" Or we're thinking, "What happens in heaven?" And again, the main issue here is they're saying either the resurrection happens or nothing happens, and they're coming and they're saying, "Clearly, the resurrection is foolish." And then Jesus answers and says, no, 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 we are going to be raised from the dead. The re resurrection does happen. He says, but when you die, your whole silly story about people being married time and time again and, you know, no offspring came and all this. He says, well, you're going to be like angels when that happens. So again, we need to pause because we are like, this is a major, major misconception in the church today. Right, right now, I say, Okay, you die, what happens? What do you picture? Right? A lot of us are like, I don't know. I maybe, and we've talked about this enough here, where if you've been here before, you probably don't think of, I often make fun of the pictures we think of as little chubby babies wearing a diaper with like little tiny wings. So they're cute, but they clearly, you can't fly anywhere because your big chubby body can't be sustained by these little tiny wings. You're wearing a diaper, so apparently incontinence is going to be a norm. And, um, what, you know, what is, what's going on here? Like, well, is, and Jesus just said it, you're going to be like the angels. No, that is not at all what he is talking about. What Jesus is saying is the angels' function is to live and to proclaim the good news of God is to proclaim the glory of God as we see in Isaiah is to declare and to live out the good news and the glory of God. So their function is not to procreate. They don't. Angels don't, don't multiply themselves. And yet, when God created man, he said, be fruitful and multiply. So God wanted to form a people for himself through the function of... Um, what's... <laughs> Through procreation. There it is. I was about to go back to the locker room or something. I couldn't think of a more appropriate word. Through procreation. 
So God wanted, uh, wanted people to continue on in that way. And so these guys' story, he's saying, no, 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 that will no longer be necessary. When, when, when the resurrection happens, you won't need to procreate. So you will be like angels in that way in your function. But another thing that we think of angels is we think of angels as they, uh, they, they're like invisible, kind of translucent, if that, or, or the spiritual realm is this kind of invisible world, right? Angels are among us, angels in the outfield, angels in Los Angeles or whatever that one was, right? We have all these crazy ideas about angels, and so we, again... It's crazy that from a, a passage like this, so much of our understanding of what will happen then, of the kingdom of heaven then, of the resurrection. I actually looked at a bunch of different translations because a lot of us, we talk of heaven, we almost never talk about the resurrection. And that is incredibly important because that has a lot to do with our understanding of life now. That has a lot to do with our, our hope for the future. So that's why we need to really roll up our sleeves in a passage like this and dig in. So what happens? The resurrection is not that we are just these translucent beings. It's not just the spiritual world out there that has nothing to do with the physical world here. And we'll get into that more at the end as, he, as um, Jesus answers again and he talks about God being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But because we're there, I'll just start to get into it here. Listen, um, the, the dominant Platonic thought that didn't really come alive, it kind of was born in the 3rd and 4th century B.C., okay? So before this time was this idea of dualism. Okay, and a lot of what we talk about, the sacred and secular, the spiritual and the physical, science and religion, a lot of the stuff that we just accept that is, guys, this are the waters we are swimming in completely. Where that, that was born during the time of Plato, but kind of lay dormant and wasn't as dominant until the Renaissance, until, until the time, the period of enlightenment. Okay, so in like the you know, 13, 14, 15, 16th century A.D., in that time, there's enlightenment and post-enlightenment. And we're still in post-enlightenment time right now. But let me tell you, that is completely contrary to the Scriptures. God does not separate these things, but we do constantly. Are you tr- tracking with me? Because I, I know, again, I've spent so much time in this I want to I want to take time to understand that 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 we come with questions and we're thinking yeah what happens heaven this invisible place and we become spirits and what happens there and we inject all of that into this and in fact on the flip side Jesus is undoing that cuz the whole message that he's bringing is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand is coming and that there will come a day when God will 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 raise all people from the dead. And when He will judge the living and the dead and those who have put their faith in Jesus, He will welcome into the new heavens and the new earth into His kingdom. And then that those who have not trusted in Christ, still raised physically, will be judged and will be sent away from Him in what the Bible calls hell. Separated from God and His goodness and His glory forever. And hear me, look at me. 
There is absolutely a very real and very physical nature to his kingdom. That's why he really cares about who we are and how we live now. Because the kingdom has come and is yet to come. Because the way we live and the way we function, the way we think now, has everything to do with how God created us and how God will eventually bring in His kingdom. Okay, So there's no sacred and secular divide. There's no science or religion. There's no spiritual or physical. Okay, We are whole people. And when we corporately and individually turn our backs on God and say, no, thank you, God, I don't want to follow you, that is what the Bible calls sin. We are offended by the very nature and design of, and purposes of God. And so we're offended by that. We turn away and we, and then sin infects us and affects us in every way. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, in our marriages, in our work, in every way. So it is an absolute lie that we hold on to that says, well, there's a spiritual side of it and a physical side of it. And, you know, God kind of cares about this stuff, but not really this stuff. No, everything. We say all of life is all for Jesus because it's a quote coming from a man, Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian, who says there is not one square inch over the entire created order or the entire cosmos over which Jesus, who is Lord over all, does not cry out, that is mine. Okay, so when he's answering these Sadducees, he's saying, you don't get the power of God. You don't get the scriptures because that has been true and that has been declared and that has been the message of God all throughout his story. And that has to do with how we live right now. Yes, Jesus is saying, yes, I am a real king. Yes, I am bringing a real kingdom. And yes, this real kingdom will last forever and will be, and will be consummated once and for all and will, and will continue into all eternity. So you're power trip you're on right now, your, your little sacred secular divide, your just be, just be good right now and then you die and you're annihilated, um, that absolutely doesn't work. And that is what Jesus is getting at. He is hammering on the resurrection from the dead that we will all experience. Okay, pinch yourself or pinch your neighbor. Take your choice. Okay, is it real? It feels real, right? Like it's real. We have to do the hard work, guys, of getting out of our minds the idea that, 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 that when we die and are raised from the dead, it'll just be some kind of floating thing or a, a corporate choir concert or the chubby babies in diapers with little wings thing. That is absolutely unbiblical and really hard to find. And, and honestly, really, really, really dangerous. Okay, so that's what Jesus is hammering on. The main point is the resurrection. So now let's just continue on and not talk about marriage. No. Again, the main point here is the resurrection from the dead. But we have tons of questions, right? Well, what's going to happen when we die? I'm married. Perhaps some are thinking... Um, when I die, I hope that's the end of it. So this kind of says I'll never see my spouse again. Um, awesome. Good. I accept. And some are probably, and if that's you, we need to talk. That's broken and sad. And, um, but some are also, and probably some of us feel maybe some of both, are thinking this and we're like, 
that's really sad. I, I like my spouse. Like, I'm really close with them. So am I going to be married when I'm in heaven? Am I going to know my, my wife or my husband? Are we going to re- recognize each other? Or again, another way we maybe think of heaven is just this idea of, um, it's just, and again, the term we should use is the re- re- resurrection. Okay, or, or, the, or the perfected, restored kingdom of God. That's more the biblical term. So we just use heaven as a shorthand. We'll just kind of put that aside for now. That's um, Actually, we'll hit into that in a minute. But um, so we ask those questions, right? What's going to happen? What about marriage? What does relationship look like? Well, again, understand we live, this is post-enlightenment stuff. Again, we're all about the individual. It's all about me, 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 me. Stephen intentionally during our worship put that song in there and added the, the corporate element where we said we, and I always forget songs and words, but whatever it was, we came, right? And we said we, we climbed the mountain with our hands wide open and there's a corporate reality. And, and, and again, the good news of scripture is a communal God, eternally existing, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, relationally, that is his nature, created people the first time he said something is not good, it's not good that man is alone. Let us make man in our image. Let us create a helper for him, male and female. He created them. God is a communal God. So our individualistic world, our individualistic lenses through which we read his word are really, really broken and gets in our way from understanding what he's saying because we just think individual, individual, me and my life, my life, my this, my that. That stuff's good, but when that becomes ultimate, it's not good. And so Jesus doesn't even get into that because he, he's living amongst a communal people who would, who, would, who would understand the communal nature of God. And there is goodness in community. So some people, which I don't adhere to though, some would say, to answer our question here about marriage, some would be like, yeah, that's all going to be done. This whole marriage thing and these marriage relationships are just for this time. It just serves a purpose. So when you're in the re- re- resurrection, when in the final day, when we're there, when we're together, when we're living real life in God's kingdom, I'll walk around the corner and I'll be like, hey, there's my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Pittman. You know, high five. All right. Hey, there's Kira. High five. You I haven't talked to in however long it'll be, you know, forever. You I was married to for years, but you're the same to me. I personally don't think that. We will no longer be married, husband and wife, in the same way we are now. Because constantly the language is used of in that time, our needs will be fully met in our perfect bridegroom, Jesus Christ. That we corporately are the bride of Christ communally we are the bride of Christ and Jesus is the perfect bridegroom and so in God's loving provision he has given us husband and wife relationship for this season yes to continue and to multiply and and to build uh, the people of God in our homes and through relationship and to experience oneness and intimacy in God's provision for us through our spouses through a relationship like no other human relationship. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a gift. And somehow, and I'll admit, I don't know, guys. I don't know exactly how those needs will be met for all eternity. But I know that they will be. 
I know that God has lovingly and graciously met our need through the institution of marriage, the relationship of marriage in this time. And in that time, it will no longer be needed to be met in the way that it is now. So, though, the question comes back, will I just see my wife and be like, hey, I kind of remember you, but let's just get back to singing or let's get back to this. I don't think so. I, I think... And I've read a lot, I've listened a lot, but just in, in summary, my thought is it will be, I think that we will have appropriate intimacy, like we do now, right? Like if I met you for the first time and we're from the same hometown, or we both dislike ASU together, or whatever it is, there's an intimacy there, right? There's a friendship, but it's different. It's, there's an appropriate intimacy with some people, and then an appropriate intimacy with others. So there's an intimacy with my wife now that is not appropriate with every other relationship. So I think the same will continue on, where we will have appropriate intimacy in my wife and our relationship with our family and those that we've known. There will be a sense of we're like we were like trench mates together. Right? I think that all of God's people, the church, the bride of Christ together, we will be and we will all have a communal um, relationship and a celebration together, even if we didn't know, we'll say, wow, you are slugging it out in the kingdom of the world, in the broken world that we lived in. Even if I've never met you before, there's an, a, there's an intimacy there. There's a bond. There's a shared bond together. But with our spouses and our friends and people here together that we've lived community, we've shed tears together, I think there will continue to be an appropriate intimacy that says, man, we slugged it out side by side. We were grinding out this life, figuring out what it meant to be the people of God together, and now we get to celebrate that and live that out together. So that's my understanding of this. And, and a last question, maybe to get even a little weird, but some of you, someone in here has this question, is will there still be sexuality and gender? And I think this verse um, answers that. So if there's no longer sex, there's no longer m- marriage for procreation, will we just be kind of asexual beings. And, and I think that um, when Jesus says we will neither be married nor given in marriage, that the language there is, 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 is speaking of sexuality because men marry and women are given in marriage. And so again, in their context, they would hear that. And that was a very affirming language Jesus is using because usually religious people don't talk about women, okay? Because women were kind of outcasts in society. And we've seen time and time again, right? Jesus isn't about that. He's about breaking up societal norms. He talks to the leper, the outcast, to everyone. And so Jesus includes women in the resurrection, in his perfect kingdom. He says, yeah, men and women. But they won't be married, they won't be given in marriage, for their function will now be like that of the angels, to live out and to proclaim the good news of God and the character of God in our function, in our work, in our relationships, in every way, together as the bride of Christ. Amen? Hello, amen. Um, I know we've dived into some murky stuff there, but hopefully um, through being more and more aware of our own cultural biases today, we're able to read God's word uh, through the lens of his story, of his authorship, that he's the hero, and that he has good plans for us in the day that it's to come. And so lastly, Jesus gets into this in verse 26. So he kind of flipped it there, and he, and he answered their first question. He said, you don't understand the scripture or the power of God. So he just addresses the 
power of God to, to answer and say, no, 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 God is so God will raise from the dead and, 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 there, and, and in the final day we will have resurrected bodies. And so he answered the power of God and now he answers the scriptures. And again, Jesus being the man that he is, answers them and really puts them in their place in verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, can you just, that? And as for the dead being raised, in fact, he's like, okay, your first thing, check. Your second thing, okay, let me answer that one. And he's just dealing, and these are the most powerful people there. Okay, so Jesus is not intimidated. He's not afraid. Confident, yet humble. The creator, yet the one who would give his life. This is the posture he has. And he says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Again, you're quite wrong. But he quotes their books. He goes back to Exodus chapter 3, one of the five books that they would accept, that they would read. He doesn't go to Daniel or Jeremiah or Isaiah and talk about the resurrection. He doesn't go to the prophets. He goes to Exodus and he brings them to the scriptures that they would accept. And he says, do you not remember in this time when God presented himself to Moses, right, in the burning bush, and he said, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And very simply and very pointedly, Jesus just says, God is the God of the living, not of the dead. God wouldn't present himself to Moses and quote that he's a God of three people who had already physically died. Right? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had already lived and died and were no more. And God uses a present tense and says, I am the God now of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And that is used to inform this whole re re resurrection language that is to come. Because no, they haven't been raised yet. Everyone would know Abraham and Isaac and Jacob weren't like walking around as re re resurrected new people. He says, no, no, that day will come, but God is the God of the living, not the dead. And he puts them in their place. And, and he explains again that there is restoration. Because in verse 27, it's such a comforting verse for us today. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. As we close together, perhaps nothing is more broken than the reality of death. And I know a lot of us in this room, a lot of us are close to people in this room who have experienced death, who are experiencing death. Death in relationship, death in our physical capabilities, and ultimately physical death, where we lose loved ones or are losing loved ones. And the broken message of the Sadducees and of so many of us today is, well, this life is all you got. Carpe diem, seize the day now because this is it. But God is the God of power. God is the God not of the dead, but of the living. The good news of Jesus is that death does not win. Does that shape our lives today? Does that shape how we live today? Do we tend to live like the Sadducees, like this is it, this is everything? Or, yes, yeah, sometimes with tears streaming down our face, Yes, not hiding from the reality of the brokenness in this world, the reality of death, the reality of sadness, but looking to Jesus as our big brother who's gone before us, 
who by laying his life down on the cross, through death, put death to life. So that as we look to Jesus, we see the good news of God, that death indeed does not win, that when Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished, the good news is not just his time hanging on the cross is finished, but the authority and the power and the effect of death is finished. So that through faith in Jesus, who rose from the dead, the clearest presentation of the power of God shows us what is to come. And if you remember, when Jesus rose from the dead, he showed himself to his own people, his own followers, and at first they didn't recognize him. Again, what the Sadducees were asking, they just assumed whatever you have, you die, and then at some point God's like, all right, wake up, you know, heads up, seven up. And all of a sudden we just pop up and we go at it like we are. But no, the glory of what is to come is a resurrection where things are the way they should be, the way God created them to be. I'll be dunking basketballs. No, I don't know about all that, but whatever it is, glorified in such a way that Jesus presented himself to his own friends and they didn't recognize him at first. They walked right past him. But then when God opened their eyes and illuminated their eyes to see Jesus, which he has to do to each of our hearts here, we're naturally blind, we're naturally hardened, and God in his grace opens our eyes and enables us to see and respond to Jesus We see a glorious, resurrected Jesus. Because then once they saw this, oh yeah, we do know you. You're different, but you're Jesus. And that's the good news of what is to come. Amen. Amen. So now, guys, as we close, I said that before. I'm just not supposed to do that. I want to read a quote for us to understand what now. Okay, because especially in a sermon like this, we got into it, we got into philosophy. I'm quoting Dr. Burns from the U of A, which I've always wanted to do, haven't gotten to do for like 15 years. So we're, we're finally, like we got into it, we got into philosophy. Sometimes it's really practical, but today it was like really, really, really kind of formative stuff, right? So what now? What do we do now? How do we live now? Well, let me read this as we close together. It's a quote from a guy, Cornelius I actually read this quote with some guys earlier this week and thought it was appropriate. So we hear that, thank you, Jesus, death does not win. So what now? We have to find our role within God's big project. Hear that. Again, our story is not the ultimate story. In light of his story, we need to find our role in that. The one that stretches across the border from this life into the next. To be a responsible person is to find one's role in the building of shalom. And then he goes on to explain the definition of shalom. It's the re-webbing of God, humanity, and all creation in justice, harmony, fulfillment, and delight. To be a responsible person is to find one's own role and then, funded by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, to fill this role and to delight in it. Hopefully that enables us a little bit to break down that division that we've created, that the Sadducees embrace, this sacred, secular, this now and then kind of idea, and to understand that we're living now in the beginning of the good news of Jesus, of His kingdom, where we can find delight in all of life, not just spiritually, non-physically, but in our function, in our role, in our work, to our delight, for God's glory, our joy, and the good of others. So when we come to Jesus, church, as we prepare to respond to him now, 
There is confrontation. Our kingdom needs to be exposed and dealt with and repented of and now embracing Him and accepting the good work that He has done for us. And then from there, there is transformation. And there's transformation now where our hearts go from death to life, from stone to flesh. Jesus will transform all those He's called to be His children. And then finally, once and for all, there is restoration. The good news of His kingdom that informs the world that we live in now. Because all of life belongs to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that, uh, Lord, that we're a part of a church that, Lord, submits to your word, that doesn't give us the freedom to avoid the hard passages, to just allow ourselves to be the author, Lord, ourselves to be the hero of the story, because I know many of us right now are living in light of the broken reality, the, the consequence of us being in charge. So Lord, thank you that we had to submit ourselves to your word, that we had to depend on, on the Holy Spirit to enable us to understand these kind of difficult passages. But thank you that at the end of the day, we come back to the good news that all of life is all for Jesus because of the, the work he, de- he did in putting death to death on the cross and then raising from the dead, ushering in his kingdom that informs and defines our lives now. So now as we respond to you, I pray that we will appropriately respond in, re- in repentance, in faith, in confession, and in worship. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.